This morning's reading is from Acts 9, verses 1 to 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jericho, Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, 
passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. As I begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak and reveal yourself to us. So I pray that in light of that truth that I as preacher would just get out of the way. There'd be far, far less of me and far, far more of you. That your people gathered this day would be edified in your son, Jesus glorified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. He'd been blind for three days. The trauma of the encounter still reverberating to the deepest recesses of his being. The door opens. An indistinct conversation ensues. Footsteps near. A gentle touch. The hand radiating warmth through his shoulder. A voice speaking familial affection. Brother Saul. His first sight with healed eye is the smiling face of a man he had only days before muttered against with murderous intent. In that touch, that word, the gospel came home to Saul's heart. A touch, a word that he would for the rest of his life be working out the implications of. A touch, a word that not only changed him, it changed the one who carried it. Neither of them would be the same again. Acts 9 is likely the most famous conversion story in Christian history. In some ways, you and I owe our very presence here to this one encounter. For Saul, Paul, brought the good news to us, to Gentiles, to non-Jews. But today, Saul isn't our focus. Ananias is. Our current sermon series invites this. A series on belonging, extending hospitality. And each week, we've been pushed a little further outside of our comfort zone. For Ananias here extends hospitality to one who isn't at all safe. In fact, Saul is his sworn enemy. You see, Saul was a Pharisee, a leading member of one of the major movements within Judaism. It was their conviction that God would only bless Israel, only send Messiah, if Israel was perfectly faithful to the law. And so they codified it into 613 commands, guarded it with thousands of additional man-made laws to assure faithfulness. 
And then they took it on themselves to draw Israel into obedience. And in the midst of this religious climate comes a new Jewish sect claiming Jesus to be Messiah, blessing coming not by works but by grace, anathema to the Pharisee, the undermining of everything that they believed in. And so faithfulness, future blessing, demanded that they stand against this movement. And Saul did so with settled hostility. Acts speaks of him as destroyer of the church, using a word that would picture a herd of wild boars trampling through a vineyard or a wild beast ripping apart the body of its prey. Our chapter speaks of Saul breathing out murderous threats. Again, the language is evocative, picturing a wild beast snorting and panting. Saul used all means available to root out and wipe out this movement, capturing them, throwing them in prison, casting lots for their death, even overseeing mob violence, and at least one Christian, Stephen, was stoned to death. There likely would have been many more. In the face of this persecution, Jesus' followers fled north to the city of Damascus. Undeterred, Saul procured letters from the temple authorities to pursue them even there. Bound, their return to Jerusalem would mean trial, arrest, perhaps even death. Letters in hand, a contingent of temple guards at his side, he sets out the 140 miles, seven day walking journey to Damascus. But within sight of the city, an encounter. Blinding light dropping him to his knees, a thundering voice Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Rise, go into the city, and there you will be told what to do. Saul is left blind, must be led by the hand like an infant. They procure a house. For three days, Saul has no food, no water, fasting, praying, reeling. The trauma of the encounter reverberating to the very depths of his being. What would come next? You'd have to think that most of those three days were spent in abject fear. For most of his life, he'd felt, I'm right with God. A Pharisee of the Pharisee. I have every credential needed to place me in good standing, zealous for the cause of God, fiercely putting down anything that would undermine Israel's future blessing. But then, on the road to Damascus, a theophany, an encounter with the living God, and the living God is none other than Jesus whose movement he's committed to wipe from the face of the earth. In a moment, he moves from believing that he's right at the center of God's will to knowing that he's missed the boat entirely. In a moment, he goes from thinking he's building up the people of God to now knowing he's persecuting the people of God. The last words of Jesus to him, go to the city 
you'll be told what to do. It's rather ominous, isn't it? I don't doubt that Saul's mind is full of imagining God's fiery wrath burning against him. He had likely leveraged such imagery to motivate his fellow Israelites to obedience, and now such imagery animates his fears. I'm not sure the vision of someone coming to him, laying hands on him, that he might regain his sight, is giving him any reprieve from that fear. What? So I'll see judgment coming? No thank you. In verse 10, we leave Saul, likely in the grip of fear, and move across town to Ananias, a disciple of Jesus, a church leader, a Jew. Ananias, the Greek rendering of his Hebrew name, Hananiah, God has been gracious. He's asleep, dreaming. And in the dream, he is met with Jesus who says, Rise, go to the, the street called Straight. There in the house of Judas, you will find one Saul of Tarsus. He's had a vision of you laying hands on him and him regaining his sight. Ananias knows who this is. Really, God? Do you know how evil this man is? What he's done to your people? What he's come here to do to me, to us? How can you ask this of me, God? But the Lord insists. Go. I have plans for him. He will make my name known. He will suffer for my name. Hang on a minute. Hang on just a minute. I mean, this, this is God, right? And if there was more that was needed in Saul's life to transform him, to make him new, why didn't God just do that on the road to Damascus? Why did he need Ananias? Why does Ananias need to face his fear, embrace an enemy, be an agent of reconciliation? Why? Why? Perhaps it was necessary for both of them transformative for both of them. I wonder what the journey was like for Ananias that day as he made his way to the home of Judas. I suspect it was a central moment in his life as well as he wrestled with his fears, his doubt, his anger, his hurt, applying the gospel to each one of them. Perhaps his internal dialogue followed these threads. Do you know how evil this man is, Jesus? He doesn't deserve your grace and forgiveness. He deserves judgment. Oh yes, but so did I before your grace found me. Yes, but, but I've never done anything near as bad as Saul. Oh, but if I go down that road... The currency of my relationship with you is not grace, but works. And if it's works, then I'm done for. For your holiness demands perfection. And no one can stand before you. I guess, I guess Saul and I are the same. On level footing at the foot of the cross. Both adopted into your family by grace. 
With every step closer, I wonder if the fear grew. What if he turns on me when he regains his sight? You may have touched him, but what about those guards? Oh, but you've promised, Lord, to never leave me nor forsake me. You did not spare your only son, but gave him up for me, assuring me of your love and goodness towards me. That might not assure my temporal safety, but certainly my eternal safety. In my fear, I will rest in your goodness and grace. I wonder, with each step closer, he's becoming more and more overwhelmed by the task in front of him. How can a man spewing murderous threats, sadistically enjoying mob violence against Christians, become the kind of person who suddenly makes you known, proclaims faithfully in word and deed your grace and love? What words can I use? Power can I demonstrate? Logic can I muster to bring such a transformation about? Stop right there, Ananias. That's my job. All I'm asking you to do is to go to him and lay hands on him. I'm only asking you to be faithful in that one moment. Leave the rest to me. Ananias is now at the door. He knocks. A path is open for him to the room that Saul occupies. Saul's mind likely swirling with visions of God's judgment. Footsteps approach, a gentle hand, the hand radiating warmth through his shoulder, a voice speaking familial affection. Brother Saul. Sight regained his vision filled with the smiling face of a man. A man that he had come to lay hands on to bring down to death is the one who lays hands on him to bring him up to life. It's the same picture that Jesus paints in the parable of the Good Samaritan. A Jew beaten, mugged, left for dead, looking up to see the face of his enemy, a Samaritan, wiping blood from his eyes, and attending to his every need. For Jesus, that picture, an enemy coming in love, was at the core of the gospel. In Ananias' touch, his word, that core of the gospel came home to Saul's heart. For on the road, he'd been exposed as an enemy of God, one on whom the judgment of God should rightly rest. But the one who had suffered greatly at Saul's hands is the messenger of the good news. Meaning there's nothing you could ever do, Saul, ever have done that can cut you off from the forgiving grace of God. By grace, you have been adopted as a child of the living God, making you and I brothers. Brother Saul. Ananias became for Paul an embodiment of the gospel. One of my favorite stories is Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. It tells the story of a man who's been incarcerated for stealing a loaf of bread for his starving family. 
He'd been sentenced to year after year of hard labor. Released, there is no future hope, for no one will give a job to a convicted, hardened criminal. A bishop gives Valjean some food, a warm bed, but Valjean doesn't sleep in it. He waits for the bishop to fall asleep, gets up from his bed, goes out, steals the silverware, and slinks off into the night. He's arrested the next morning. The arresting officers presume that the silverware has been stolen, the insignia leading them to the bishop's home. When they arrive, the bishop is overjoyed to see Valjean. Valjean, it's so good to see you. You forgot the candlesticks that I gave you. With no evidence to prove the theft, the police have no other option but to let Valjean go. In that moment, the core of the gospel comes home to Valjean's heart. The bishop becomes an embodiment of the gospel. In the book, Hugo writes this of Valjean. He had the indistinct feeling that this priest's forgiveness was the greatest assault and most tremendous attack he'd ever experienced. That if he resisted this clemency, the hardening of his heart would be definitive. That if he yielded, he would be obliged to renounce that hatred with which the deeds of other men had filled his soul over so many years. Hatred he relished. What was certain, what he was sure of, was that he was no longer the same man. He was completely changed within It was no longer in his power to act as though the bishop had not spoken to him, had not touched him. Can you hear the encounter of Ananias and Saul behind that story? A moment where the core of the gospel comes home to a heart? Where a moment where one becomes the embodiment of the gospel for another? At some level... This is what this entire series is all about. Extending hospitality is becoming an embodiment of the gospel. Where every encounter with another brings a central question right up to the surface. How can I embody the welcome, grace, love, forgiveness, and mercy of God for this person in this moment? As a Christian... As a church leader, Ananias likely had countless interactions where he'd extended such hospitality, embodied the gospel for the sake of another, and had likely done so without giving it much thought. But this encounter was different in who the other was. In this case, an enemy, one who wasn't at all safe, one who didn't stir up in his heart any natural affection. In fact, quite the opposite. Every single one of us here this day has encounters with people who don't feel safe, with whom we have distance, estrangement, brokenness, people who don't in any way stir up in us natural affection. And in the face of their need, in the face of an unavoidable interaction, 
we're often tempted to either recoil in fear, lash out in anger, or pass by with indifference. But the question that the Spirit, through the Word this day, is laying before us is, how can I embody the grace, love, mercy, and forgiveness of God for this person in this moment? How might the gospel be embodied? But I don't feel like doing that. Well, none of us feel like doing that. Ananias didn't feel like doing that. But it seems that he took a hold of his feelings and the gospel became a conversation partner. So when we don't feel like doing it, let's take a hold of our feelings, our thinking, and apply the gospel to them. Ask the Spirit to press the love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God down into those places in our hearts. Not just for others' sake, but for our own sake. For in so doing, the glory of the gospel, the immensity of his love, will become that much more real to us. But it's, but it's too much. How could I possibly... If I do that in this moment, I'm going to be required to do more and say more and be more. I'm not sure I've got the resources for that or that I even want to. Do you know who this person is? Who says you've got to do more, give more, say more, be more? I remember early on in my life as a minister, hearing heartbreaking story after heartbreaking story encountering deep need after deep need, often in people that didn't stir up in me natural affection. The knowing of those stories left me feeling that I had then the responsibility to walk with each of those people toward wholeness. It was overwhelming. It was laying the groundwork for burnout. But as I prayed, as I suffered, I sensed the Lord saying to me, Stop trying to do my job. I don't ask you to do what only I can do. I'm only asking you to be faithful in this moment of encounter. How can you embody the gospel for this person in this moment? And we have absolutely no idea what one simple act of embodied gospel hospitality will have on another. We have no idea what impact it will have. All that Ananias did was step into a room, put a hand on a shoulder, and say, Brother Saul, that's it. And in God's hands, that one moment had incredible impact, not only on Saul, but on the entirety of human history. For that one encounter, is the reason that the good news has been brought to us. When invited to gospel hospitality, don't worry about what comes next. That's in God's hands. Simply ask, how can I embody the gospel in this moment? Now imagine for a moment not just the impact of individual acts of gospel hospitality but the impact of an entire community committed to living such acts out. A number of years ago, I bore witness to such a reality. 
Before his retirement, one of our mission partners was Ed Vandenberg. He and his wife, Elena, attend our evening service. For 21 years, Ed worked with Mennonite Central Commission in a ministry called Circles of Support and Accountability. It's a ministry that works with sex offenders. Ed would organize a group of volunteers to meet someone as they were coming out of prison to put around them a circle of support and accountability, of support to find them a job, a home, a community, but also a support to provide accountability, to address the issues that would underlie reoffense. And what they found is that the recidivism rate, the rate of reoffense, dropped 70% for those who were part of a circle compared to those who weren't. What happened in those circles? When Ed retired, I was invited to his retirement party. Didn't really know anyone else there. And in the room, there were sex offenders, pastors, co-workers, and circle volunteers. I said hello to Ed and Elena and then found a seat, said hello to my neighbor. My neighbor got in a conversation with someone else. And I was left to my natural introverted ways, which in a large group of people is often to sit back and simply observe. And so I thought to myself, I wonder who the sex offenders in this room are. Some of them I knew and some of them I could intuitively pick out. But I would not in any way have been helped in my discernment by watching the interactions in the room. The warmth, the mutual affection, the interest in one another was in no way inhibited by who they were or by what they had done. And it stood out to me because I would think that in any other setting, that gathering of people would have been marked by fear and anger and apprehension. I hope they don't live in my neighborhood. Should I expose them for the sake of others? We were called to order. The retirement party program began and letters were read. Stories were shared of how people's lives were transformed by the work of circles. And in between the letters that were shed, shared, they shared two songs. Each, they said, were important to their life in circles. And one of those songs was Amazing Grace. And in that setting, the first line of the hymn hit me like a ton of bricks. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. If we were to ask the general population who in the room the wretch was, we would likely have complete agreement. The wretches are those sex offenders. But that wouldn't have been the belief in the room. Everyone was singing with gusto. Everyone was together recognizing their wretchedness. Everyone together recognizing that without the great grace and immense love of God. Tears began to well up in my eyes. And I don't cry very often. I was moved by the moment. The gospel was being embodied in that room. Embodied in the circles. Transforming hearts, not only of sex offenders, but those who were participating. And also the guy who just walked into a retirement party. The question the Spirit lays before us through his word this day is, how can I, how can we 
embody the welcome, love, forgiveness, and mercy of God for whomever the Lord brings into our path. May we yearn for that not only for others' sake, but for our own sake. For as we embody the gospel, the love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness of Jesus will become that much more real to us. The glory of the gospel overwhelming our senses. May we this day more and more be beckoned into a life of embodied gospel hospitality. Amen. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.